All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Hopefully you got a handout uh, if you find that helpful. Let me go ahead and pray and we'll get started with our time of study. Lord, we are grateful for the day that you have made. We are grateful to be your people, uh, the sheep of your pasture. Thank you for caring for us, uh, for redeeming us. We pray that we would um, grow in our knowledge as well as our love of you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Numbers 27. So you can turn to Numbers 27. Numbers has a lot of numbers, right? That's kind of how we get the name. Um, we have these census things that happen. Uh, early on, there's a census. And um, I'm going to show you how that, just remind you how that connects here in a second. But it begins with this census. The, what are the people getting ready to do? Why, why do they take that first census? They're ready to, getting ready to go into the land, right? God has promised um, to make a people, right? And we see him doing that through Abraham. And then we see him uh, doing it even when they're in Egypt. He continues to build his people. Uh, then he, he's also promised them a place though. Remember that? He promised that even to Abraham. And, um, and he promised them that he was going to rule over them. So we've seen him give his good law to them. That's where he's going to rule over his people called Israel. Uh, and he's going to bring them into this place, this promised land, which we saw promises of that in Genesis. So that's where they're going to go. That's why they're doing this census. Uh, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. But what do we see about the people, that, that generation? Are they faithful? No. No, they are not faithful, right? They disbelieve. They do not believe God's promises. When they start looking around them, they live by what they see instead of what God has promised. So they, they see uh, these inhabitants of the land, and they panic, right? Now, not all of them do, uh, all but really two of the guys who go in to, to, to see the land and get ready for the people to go in. Uh, all except for two of those guys are saying, look, we can't go in. Um, we, basically, what they're saying is, I know God said he's going to give us this land, but we, we should not go in, right? Which is what? That's disbelief. They're not believing what God said. So they're not going to enter the land. So then we see this 40 years of wandering, which has really been what we've seen from pretty early on in Numbers all the way to about the present time. We've seen that. And now we came, then last week we came at the end of our time last week to Numbers 26. And what do we find in Numbers 26? This is probably like your, your favorite devotional reading, right? You, you probably memorized large sections of this chapter. A second census. We have another census, right? Now we joke about it being devotional reading, and I think I think we're we're right to acknowledge that um, the Bible is full of all sorts of nutritious food that we need, right? And uh, and some of it you're going to need more of than others. Um, that doesn't mean this is meaningless or unhelpful. It's here for a reason. It is very helpful. It is God's word. But we're also right to acknowledge, you know what? There are other places where we're going to go and we're going to find the more bulk of your normal diet, right? In terms of your spiritual growth. Um, so for New, New Testament believers, we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but we also spend a lot of time learning from the Old Testament. And so we ought to be here and um, we come to this census. But the point is, uh, at the end of this 40 years of wandering, look at Numbers 26. This is what we finished out with last time, verses 63 through 65. So he finishes going through this list. And it says, these were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest, who had listed the, uh, the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left, except Caleb, the son of Jephna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Um, now, 
uh, Moses is still alive at this point as well, right? But he's been told that he's, he's going to die um, before they enter the land. So what we have going in this is really a tale of two generations in the book of Numbers and not tale in the sense of nursery rhymes or something that's supposed to just merely instill um, um, good morals, although certainly we learn morals from the book of Numbers, right? But we learn it in the context of the primary purpose of, of everything in the Bible is to show us more of who God is and who we're supposed to be in light of that. In other words, it's not just, a, I mean, nursery rhymes can give you morals, but they're detached from any sense of who God is. Obviously, it's better to have people that would live their life by those morals than no morals at all. But as Christians, we, it's more than that, right? It's not just the morals, it's knowing God, the one true living God. And so we see that happening in, in the book of Numbers, and we've seen the, the old generation, and they were not faithful. The new generation, uh, they're not going to be perfect by any stretch of the means, but they are going to be believing God's promises, and that's what we're going to start to see more of today. You're going to see this new generation trusting the faithful God. And so that's what we're looking at in this section. Um, okay, so we've seen some of those promises. Um, let's see. Someone pointed out uh, one of the ways you see God's faithfulness in Numbers 26. Uh, well, a couple ways. We've already pointed these out, but just real quick. Number one is they are about to go in the land. That's fulfillment of the promise. That's why they're taking the census. So even in the census, you're reminded God has been faithful. He's going to bring them in the land. Number two, they're going to be a great people. We're seeing that at the end of this 40 years of wandering, they're still a great people. They, they haven't dwindled, right, and wandering in the wilderness, which is what you might expect. You'd expect that not just the old generation, but everyone would be dying off, living in the wilderness. But that's not what happens. They, they continue to stay strong. Someone pointed out that in Genesis 46, um, you see about 70 people uh, entering Egypt, and here we have 70 clans listed who are ready to enter the land. So not just people, but clans, and then all the people associated with that. So we have a large group of people. Um, let's see. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Uh, it says Caleb and Joshua were the only ones. Did, was it their families too, or was it? <laughs> oh, their families. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, uh, was Joshua married at this? I don't know. I don't know how that I works. Mean, he says, it, "Me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Right. Yeah, he, he definitely married at some point. That's true. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it certainly would be, it would be within keeping of biblical language to refer to him and also refer to his whole household. Often you see that the way that uh, the one leading a certain group goes, so goes the group, right? I mean, you saw that with Korah and some of the judgment that falls on him because the assumption is they're all following what Korah's doing as well, so they're guilty, but they just talk about Korah's household being white, you know, so it's the whole thing. So it could be the same thing. It's a good question. I hadn't thought about it. So next week, let us know. <laughs> that is a good question no it's good to ask questions while you're reading the text helps you learn alright uh, so in Numbers 27 through 30 which we're going to look at today we're going to see this new generation we're going to see their faith uh, being put on display we're going to see a new shepherd is going to be appointed for the people and we're going to see that uh, some details about how they're going to specifically experience walking in faithfulness to God and particularly enjoying his presence in the land um, enjoying walking with God, because that's really been the goal, right? God in the midst of his people. That's been the whole storyline. You see it in, in the garden. You see that it's trying to be recaptured through the rest of the storyline. You see that the promised land is pointing to that with the tabernacle being at the center. Well, the camp actually even in numbers is pointing to that. The tabernacle is at the center of the camp. You're going to see it with uh, Jerusalem. The capital city is going to have the temple one day, right? God's presence specially shown among his people. God is everywhere, but specially shown among his people. And you get to the new heavens and new earth, and what makes it so great? God is in the midst, right? God is in the middle of his people. 
So uh, that's what we're, we're seeing here. But we want to see how they're going to live this out. So you can see the outline there on your handout of how we're going to break down uh, these, these couple chapters. So let's start with section one here, which is chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, the faith of the new generation. And we're going to see uh, this exemplified in these daughters that we're going to see of Zelophehad. Um, it's a name you don't see every day. So if you're looking for a good baby name, you might try that one out, right? I don't think a lot of people are using that one. Uh, so, <clears throat> so we're going to see two different points here. Um, number one, a theological point about trusting God, that trust in God is demonstrated in the priorities and desires of daily life. And then we're going to see a practical matter. How are the Israelites going to experience these blessings and promises in the land when specific circumstances arise? And this is, this, so in other words, what you have here is kind of a case law situation. Uh, that's kind of the practical issue that needs to be resolved. But what we find is there's always a theological underlining for how we're going to think about these issues, right? What matters most. So let's read this. Um, the old generation has died out. So here's what we see happen in verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the cl clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mahalal, Noah, Hagla, these are some interesting girl names, right? Uh, Milka and Tirzah. So if you're looking for daughter names, there you go. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting saying, so here's the issue, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Okay, so uh, theological truth first, then practical realities here. So, um, oh, one side note, because you may be wondering. Uh, Noah is spelled differently here than it is in Genesis 6. This is a feminine name. Uh, Genesis 6, the Hebrew spelling is different. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I could, I could read the transliteration and someone point out they were different. I'm saying, yeah, they're different. So, okay, so don't... You, you may not want to take my word for it, but there's someone out there who knows Hebrew and they are telling me that this is different. Um, so uh, I know that was really, that was like a burning question you had, right? So you were not gonna be able to pay attention to anything else I said until we resolved, is, is there a feminine version of the, of the name Noah? There is, so now you know. Um, okay, so what, what happens here? Well, these, these daughters come with this question. They point out that their, um, their dad was not in the rebellion of Korah. We don't know exactly why they point that out. Probably part of the reason is because one of the judgments you would get is like, so if you rebel against God, there'd be times where he would say like, part of the punishment is your name is blotted out. And what that means is like, like it's kind of like the Old Testament picture of hell to some degree, right? It's like everything is gone for you. You will not have descendants. They will not have a peace in the land. When all your descendants die out, your name is gone. There's no land inheritance, which was a, a big symbol of you're experiencing the blessing of God. You have a place among God's people in God's place, right? So to lose that is a significant outward picture of essentially like this is the judgment of God poured out on this family, these people, right? So it's probably being pointed out that they were not participants in that. So what they're saying is, so we don't see this as being like God's judgment on our family. This is just the way it is. It's kind of like more like a Job situation. They're not referencing Job here, but it's kind of more like just that type of suffering rather than a, you know, well, this is the judgment that God has poured out and who are we to 
to speak against the Lord's judgment, right? You see, you see what I'm saying? I, th- I think that's probably what's going on there. Um, the problem is he has no sons and the land inheritance would pass to sons um, who would have offspring. So it's a, it's a patrilineal society. It would go through the paternal side. Uh, daughters would marry in to other families, become part of carrying on their husband's line. Um, now, let me ask a question because I want to get to the theological point though. Uh, at this moment, do they have land? No. I mean, it's a little bit of a trick question because they do have a little bit of land on the Transjordan side. Um, but they don't have land in Canaan, in the promised land yet, right? Um, so, so they're kind of starting to possess land, but they don't have it yet. So I, what I want to say about this is, um, think about what that shows about these women. What does it say about these women? They're brave. They're brave. They have faith. They have faith. They believe that God is going to give them the land. Contrast that with the spies, the spies went and saw the land that God had promised. So here you have a bunch of men who you'd imagine are like survivalist men or something, right? I mean, of course, they kind of all were at this point, but you know, these are like your special forces guys. They send them in and they come back out and they're like, no, guys, we can't go in, right? And here you have these women who are like, we're going to go in, we're going to take the land and we just want to know, are we going to have land? How are you going to work this out, right? Um, so I think we see an example of trust in God's promises. They believe that every tribe, clan, and family will receive land as God has promised. And so I think that is the theological uh, point here, is this new generation needs to trust God, and we're seeing it exemplified in these daughters of Zelophehad. Um, but there's another, another point here, um, and that is a practical point, where how would cases like this work out? Um, there's going to be situations like this where there's going to be suffering in a fallen world and how are we going to work out so that they still have this experience of God's blessing? So the answer comes in verses 5 through 11. Moses brought their case before the Lord and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if his daughter, if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses." So we can see that the, the answer is given here. They, they will receive the inheritance um, and it will end up going through them. It, it, normally what would happen is the daughters would receive a dowry, right? They, they would receive, uh, it's not that they don't get any inheritance from the family, they do, but they're not gonna get the land because it has to go one way or the other. It can't, go, it can't be going all these different directions if it's gonna stay within the families and tribes and clans. So it's gonna be through the, the husband who is the leader of the family. We see that's God's design for marriage and family. And so it, it makes sense that that's going to be the way it's going to go. Um, but here we do have, in these unique circumstances, it can go to the daughters. And then through them, it would stay in their father's line. And they, they would, they, it's kind of like the name would travel through them. Kind of like a, we have last names, it's almost kind of like that. And then when they had sons, it would go to their sons and it would continue down the family line. You can see he, he addresses some other case law issues that could potentially arise. And again, the whole point of this was so they could experience the blessing of God in tangible ways. Right? This is a way that they know, okay, we are counted among the people of God. We are, we are, this inheritance is ours. And, uh, and so that, that is an important thing. So they address these practical matters. They, they address the theologic, theological matters. Um, so one thing I think we certainly can learn is uh, we want to have that sort of faith that believes God's promises. 
right? And uh, we'll talk more about that as we keep going through this, but you see these, these uh, women have exceptional faith. Um, though it shouldn't be the exception, it should be the norm. But compared to the previous generation, it's exceptional, right? Okay, so next, uh, they, need a, they need a leader too, though. That's going to be an issue. So we see that in the next section, verses 12 through uh, 23. So let's, uh, we're only going to look at 12 through 14 first. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, okay, so first of all, where is Aaron at this point? Does anyone remember? It's kind of a trick question. Where's Aaron? Yeah. Aaron is dead, right? So, it's, so that was a trick question. I was waiting for someone to, yeah. So Aaron is dead. Uh, he's been gathered with his, to his people, right? So he, he is uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord type perspective. Um, so Aaron is dead. Uh, <clears throat> who, who's priest now? Does anyone remember? You, it's okay if you don't. I wouldn't remember probably if I remember. Eleazar, yeah. So Eleazar is priest. That's Aaron's son. He was, he was now put in the role of high priest. Um, <clears throat> okay, but remember, um, okay, so that's back in, in Numbers 20, verses 24 through 25. We're, we're told... Uh, we, we see that whole thing about Aaron dying and, and Eleazar uh, becoming the high priest. Now, remember though, Moses is not going to enter the land either, right? So look back at uh, Numbers uh, 20. Well, I guess you don't have to look back. I think I just have you looking at these verses. Yeah, look at, look at Numbers 27, verses 12 through 14. We, we saw this earlier, but just to reiterate. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. So again, we're seeing God is speaking in very certain terms. I've given this to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you, shall, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. So that's, that's a way of saying you're going to die, right? Pretty clear. Um, but there's hope there. You're going to be gathered to your people. You don't just cease to exist. Verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So you remember the situation back in Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13, right? The people are complaining because they don't have water, right? Um, and, but which I, when we understand that, right? I mean, if you don't have water, that's a pretty big deal. But we also have to remember God's already provided water for them in miraculous ways. God for, you know, many years has been providing them food in the wilderness, like miraculously, not just like through farming. I mean, we're talking miraculously, which... Farming is amazing too. I mean, if the Lord doesn't send rain, we don't have food. So I'm not saying it's not, but very clear, miraculous rather than ordinary providence. That's the difference, right? Um, and so he, he's doing all this stuff. And so we understand the, the propensity to complain and be like, oh, we need water. Yeah, you need water. But you've also seen a lot about God's faithfulness and you're not believing, right? So Moses gets frustrated. He, he's told to speak to the rock and from the rock, water will come. Instead, he speaks to, or you might say at the people, kind of the way a parent just choose out a child, right? Uh, you kind of have that. He's frustrated with them. He's chewing them out. And uh, then he strikes the rock. And so God says, you have not uphold, upheld my name as holy before the people. In other words, you as the leader thought you could do something different than what I commanded you in front of the people. That's not going to work, right? You are held to a high standard. You must show that I, even if these people are unholy, that you fear me. And so you're going to live the holy life. You're going to live a life set apart to me and my glory. It's not about you and your comfort, right? So we saw that earlier. Um, so God is faithful. And, and so he's going to bring this, this judgment. Moses is not going to enter the land. And uh, Moses is not going to die until uh, uh, when? Does anyone know what book of the Bible it's going to be? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. So the next book of the Bible, right? So we don't have a lot of time that passes from where we're at in Numbers to the end of Deuteronomy. 
it's it's a relatively short period of time, maybe a year, maybe two, maybe maybe less than that. Um, Deuteronomy is mostly Moses giving sermons, right? He's because why? You have a new generation, and he's going to give them, remind them of the law, remind them of God's faithfulness, and basically say, okay, get them ready to go into the land, right? But he's going to die in in Deuteronomy 34 before they in, enter the land, which really starts to happen in Joshua, right? And so, really, from now all the way to Joshua, we have not very much time is going to pass in in the narrative. Okay, so um, that's what's going to happen. But notice what Moses does in verses 15 through 17. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So one thing we see is leadership is needed. We live in a culture that thinks leadership is expendable and should be overthrown all the time, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as bad leadership or leadership done badly, right? doesn't mean we just obey anything anyone says just because they have a title in front of their name, right? We first, we, we, we obey leaders because we fear God. And so the fear of God drives everything we do in terms of obedience and, when necessary, disobedience. That's true, right? That's really not the main point here. The main point here, though, is they need a leader, that's what I'm trying to say. It's not just this kind of like, oh, no big deal. No, they need a leader. And so uh, Moses knows that, and he, so he prays. He asks the Lord to provide a leader. Um, and, and notice he, he says, that shall go out before them and come in before them. This language in verse 17 gets used later to refer to kings. You have like a very, a very young king. I don't remember which one it is. He's really young and he's going to be king. Uh, I think there's maybe a couple. There's, I think there's more than one of those guys who end up being that way. But so, and, and he says, look, um, you know, how, how can I go, go out and come in before this people? I'm, I'm so young. And what he's referring to really is like a king leading into battle type stuff. A king with the wisdom and courage and ability to go lead into battle and other things. He's, that's what it means when going, going out and coming in. The ability to be the head of state and all that that would entail, Right. Um, so in one sense, we're kind of being set up for a kingly type leadership. Joshua is not going to be a king. Kings aren't going to come till later, but we're, we're having some foreshadowing going on here. Um, but at least it, 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 it's important here because what's Joshua's main job going to be? He's going to lead them into the land and there's going to be military conflict, right? They're going to take the land. So, so that's not too surprising there, but we have that idea. And then, um, Verse, second part of verse 17, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So we, we see this imagery over and over again in the Old Testament of, of shepherd, a shepherd leader, right? Which is there's the idea that there's going to be a provision, a shepherd provides, a shepherd protects, right? A, sh- a shepherd leads the people, um, not just in military conflict, but in just everyday provision, thinking through what that's going to look like for this people to fear God, uh, spe- for Israel specifically, because they're, they're a theocracy, right? So, so there's, this is a pretty key role here. Um, so that's what, that's what we're going to see happening. And this foreshadows Israel's kings, like I said, but it also foreshadows the ultimate king, doesn't it? He's going to be the one who's going to come as the conquering king eventually, right? Putting all, all his enemies will be made a footstool under him. Uh, all of God's en- people's enemies will be... Uh, destroyed eventually. Uh, he's also going to um, shepherd them, right? Jesus even says, I'm the good shepherd. And so he's going to provide what is needed for his people. Well, Joshua is the new guy. He, he gets appointed leader. Look at verses 18 through 23. So then, uh, so, sorry, so the, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom 
is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the Lord, uh, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So Joshua, one of the, the spies who gave the good report, him and Caleb. So Joshua is the one who's commissioned to lead this new generation. We see the spirit is in him. We see that with other leaders at times in Israel's history. In the Old Testament, the spirit would come on them for particular roles and purposes. That's different than we see what the spirit does in the new covenant once Jesus has come. Uh, if that's new to you, we did a whole series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit probably just a couple months ago. You can go back and find that audio online if you want to listen to it. Um... Eleazar anoints him. So now we have a new civil leader, Joshua, and a new high priest who we've already seen, Eleazar. So again, we're seeing the people, God is getting them ready to fulfill his promises. And the people are trusting him, right? They're like, hey, we're going in. So we need a leader. We're going in. So we need to think about how we're going to divide up the land. We got to get ready to go into the land. Now, the other thing they need to think about is they're, they're walking with God. Because the whole point is that God is with them and they experience the pleasure of walking with God. Leviticus really has dealt with how that's going to work. How can a sinful God, I'm sorry, sinful people be, in, be around a holy God? How's that going to work? They're sinful. He's holy, right? So Leviticus gives us the answer and, and to, to that through the sacrificial system, right? They, they will be made clean. They will be forgiven uh, through the sacrificial system. And that's also how they will experience kind of table fellowship with God. It's a reminder that God is actually pleased to be among us. Which again, I mean, you, could, you might could get this idea that the sacrificial system is all about like God really doesn't want them near so they make these sacrifices and they just walk around feeling sad all day long. That actually was supposed to also symbolize we have fellowship with God and they're supposed to be happy as they make these sacrifices, right? It's not just a form of like Catholic penance or something. Uh, th- this, is, this is really fellowship with God. And so we see that being rehashed here with some of the laws uh, that are, are reminders are given about their, their calendar and the sacrifices. Look at chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Lord spoke to Moses, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food, uh, my food for my food offerings, my, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And then he goes through and gives seven public offerings that the nation was to give. These have already been uh, discussed in the book of Leviticus, but he's giving it here again because they're getting ready to go into the land. It's a reminder. Um, and he's giving it here in a different, kind of a more just calendar-oriented way. He's just going to go through and tell them because all time belongs to God, but they're going to experience it through these special feasts, these special days, right? So uh, these holy days, right? Holidays, days set aside for reminders of fellowship with God. Now what's listed here, these don't include the individual sacrifices, They're going to make individual sacrifices too for their own sins, for their own individual fellowship with God. But this is for like the nation, the people as a whole that they're going to be made. It reminds us that God delights in his people. Uh, We're not going to look at all these in depth for the sake of time, but also because we've covered some of this in the book of Leviticus. I'm just going to look at the, the two most common offerings that they're going to experience, which are the daily offering and then the uh, Sabbath. So let's look at those real quick. Verses three through eight. 
You shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day. So when? Day by day. This is a daily offering, right? <clears throat> as, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And then he goes on, he lists a bunch of other things, flour and um, different things, oil, things that will be offered with it. Um, let's see, uh, verse 8, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering uh, of the morning, and like its drink offering you shall offer. So in other words, you do the same thing, uh, but you do it at twilight, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. So daily, this is happening outside the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Sabbath, look at verses 9 through 10. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, and then he goes on, two-tenths of ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So these are in addition to whatever other things you would have, right? So on the Sabbath, you're going to have daily offering and you're going to have Sabbath offering and, and it'll continue to compound. So if you have like a special holiday, you could have multiple things going on in the same day. Yeah. How, like, how could they really do all this? Yeah. It's like, it's a lot. This is my, my, I guess my question is I've been, you know, going through this uh, with, with, uh, with everybody is like, how, how can they, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, because I guess God gave them, you know, the ability, yeah. you know, to do it. But, you know, there had to have been times when they accidentally missed something or. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or, or something yeah. like that. So what would happen then? Yeah. So um, I'm, they might have accidentally missed things. Uh, I mean, you have a whole um, tribe that is responsible to make sure these things are happening. Right. So you have the tribe of Levi is responsible to make sure this happens. Um, now, specifically, the priest. And not every Levite is, is a priest, but they all have these responsibilities related to the temple. Um, so in one sense, how do you do it? You have full-time ministers that make sure it happens, right? I think that's, I think that's one answer. Um, but you're right. I mean, this is a big endeavor. I mean, you're talking about a lot of sacrificing. So it really is a full-time job for these priests in terms of all the sacrifices and all the things that have to go on and caring for the now, now tabernacle, later temple, right? Um, and so that brings up a good point. One of the ways we see this demonstrates faith in God is because there's so much that is going on. Uh, someone calculated, uh, if you just look at these sacrifices, and I, uh, someone did math. I don't do math. I'm just going to tell you that. I don't do math. No, I mean, I do math, but I don't enjoy math, right? Um, I know some of you are like, I don't even want to listen to you anymore. I love math, but I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. Um, <clears throat> 113 bulls, 1,086 lambs, a, a ton of flour, 1,000 bottles of oil and wine, and this is in addition to individual sacrifices that are being made. Okay, so... How does this demonstrate faith in God? This, okay, if, if, you, if you really don't think there's a God inside that temple, and again, remember, I'm not saying he's like just inside the temple, right? They even said that, God, you're everywhere. Um, but I'm saying like in a special blessing way where he is like fellowship with his people. He is holy, so you can't just walk in there. But you want to be in good fellowship with him because you love him because he is the one true God of the universe, right? And so if you believe him, okay, you're going to do this. What if you don't though? This is expensive. This is like, and it, it's, I mean, it's not like you just have food to spare. I mean, it's an agri agricultural society. This is very costly. So think about how this shows faith in God. Demonstrates like we really believe you're real, you're with us, and we can trust you to provide for all of our needs. And the biggest need we have is to be right with you and to love you and to, and to 
you know, experienced your love for us. And these, these feasts, they're reminders that, because the second thing you're going to see is, um, I don't know if I pointed this out yet, but over and over again, it's going to say pleasing aroma in this section for the, over the next two chapters. I think it's 11 times the word pleasing aroma comes up. What is that? I think what that's intended to point to is God delights in, in relating to his people. That's why I'm saying, again, these sacrifices aren't like a, we do this and then we just cower in fear and hope he doesn't just change his mind and judge us. It's he told us to do it, we believe it, we do it, God gladly receives it because he is fellowshipping with us. This isn't just a one-way fellowship relationship, right? This is God fellowshipping with us. Not, and what makes it more amazing is it's not as though he needed anything. Think about how Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 17. God is not worshiped and served by us as though he needed anything. Paul's point is not God is not rightly worshiped, that we do not rightly serve God. It's just we don't do it in a, in a mercenary way, in a way where it's like, well, God needs this, so he's going to hire us to do it. That's, that's not love. That's mercenary, right? Instead, we have pictures like the bride and Christ, that type of relationship. Not mercenary, but marriage, right? There's this genuine love, affection, desire to be together. And so that's what you see happening, I think, even in these sacrifices. So lots of sacrifices. So Application for us, we live in a time where the materialistic worldview is probably one of the main worldviews, isn't it? Everything's just material, everything's biology, everything is software running on biology, um, and so we can do whatever we want with it, it doesn't matter. Um, but if we have a worldview that sees the one true living God as real, active, worth knowing, in fact, the only truly valuable treasure in the universe, that, that means something for the way we view the world, doesn't it? Everything isn't just all pragmatism all the time. Well, does it work? Well, we should back up and say, is it right and good, right? Um, it, it, and it means something for the way we think about the treasure God gives us, whether it's money, time, or abilities, all those things. How, how do I live in a way that shows these good gifts come from God, right? Uh, I steward them in a way that when I enjoy them, I enjoy them with a mind to truly thank God and be drawn back to God. Th- these are like beams of light. God is the sun. I, it draws me back up to the sun, right? It's like these are, these are drops of water, but it draws me back to the ocean, who is God. It, it draws me back to God, who's the infinite fountain of all goodness. Uh, and so even when I enjoy it, when I give it, I do it with a cheerful heart. Because I, and I do it with a trusting heart. It says, God, you'll provide for my needs. So we could keep going down the line, but hopefully you get the idea and you can work that out in your own life. What, how does my worldview, my way of, do I really believe this? And, and how does it affect my daily life? Uh, And then also the other thing I think you can apply is God enjoys relating to his reconciled people. Again, not out of necessity, as if God needed it. That makes it all the more amazing to think about. This, This, in fact, is what we mean when we say God is love, isn't it? Because he redeems us not out of necessity, but out of love. He just, why? Because he loves us. And it's not because we're great. Right? We really messed it up. But he loves us and he re- loves to relate to his reconciled people. Um, <clears throat> and we live in a culture that thinks that we don't need to be reconciled. We think it's not a big deal. This whole pleasing aroma thing, well, the, who cares? I am a pleasing aroma. Look at me, I'm great, right? That's not true either. Now, why is it that we think that we're doing okay and we're a pleasing aroma? Well, I think it's because we're like skunks. And when you have a bunch of skunks together, they probably think they all smell just fine. <laughs> who is it that they don't smell good to? People. And probably other animals as well. I imagine that's why they do that, right? But so before, uh, so in other words, why do we not think about this? Because we don't think about the holiness of God. God is holy. 
And, and that, that's not just like, I mean, it, he's perfect. It's not just a little bit. I mean, he, he is perfect in all his ways and that is actually good. And it actually is beautiful or you might say smells good. And so, but we think we're okay because we just compare ourselves to all the other skunks around us and we think we're doing okay. We have to remember who God is and when we see that, that makes us even more thankful when we say, you know what? He loved me in my filth, redeemed me, cleansed me, and he made me his child. And I still at times smell like a skunk, but, over, but he cleansed me. There's a genuine salvation and cleansing that has taken place. And so now I'm a child of God. I don't have to, I'm not cowering in fear. I'm grateful to be able to relate to the one true God. Um, so anyway, so I, I think this should shape the way we even see our own relationship. So those are some applications for us as New Testament believers. Hopefully that kind of gets you thinking about how this might apply to us uh, because we don't make these sacrifices. The new covenant, these have been fulfilled. Now we are living sacrifices. Now we are cheerful givers, right? It's not just, you see what I'm saying? So the new, new covenant transposes this into a new key because we're in the new covenant, but it, it still applies. You can learn from it in the old covenant. Okay, so uh, Numbers 30 when you talk about vows, um, any questions or comments so far, though? It's the last section we're going to look at here. Yeah. Who's in heaven in this group? I mean, because it seems that the fourth generation doesn't get to go in the way. Right. Are they believers? You know, they're walking the life or they're faking it and just believe it all. I mean, yeah. I've had a hard time with my New Testament mind. Yeah. Thinking who is who. Right. And I was. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't say Christian that before. It's just, it seemed like because people got to go into land or not. Right. Yeah. So I, th- I think you have to realize, I mean, um, you're going to have some Israelites that are genuine believing the Lord, right? Um, we, we would say even regenerated. Now, not indwelt because the spirit dwells, God dwells in the tabernacle at this point. Jesus hasn't come to bring the fullness of that, that we are now the temple, like in the new covenant. Um, but yeah, I think you see that. And I think, but I think you also see uh, not all Israel is Israel, right? I mean, you see that. Um, you, but you always see a remnant. I think you see that. That's a theme you see throughout the whole Old Testament. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, it's similar to what you have even in the New Covenant. You'll have people that outwardly, you see this in Hebrews, you see it in um, uh, Peter, I would even say. I think it comes out. You see it in John, First John. Uh, you, you have people that just because they maybe say the right things occasionally, right, or even look externally religious, um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're all walking with the Lord, does it? Right, and so that's why we have warning passages, um, like even in the sermon that we have in the book of Hebrews. That's their warning passages because he's talking to people where they they may be all professing, but only the Lord knows the heart. So we're going to say persevere, and if you're a true Christian, you'll persevere, right? Because God's spirit's at work in you. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can phrase this properly. Um, in the New Testament, it says. Let God be found faithful, mm-hmm. even if we're all unfaithful. Yes, that's right. And God was bringing the Israelites into this land for his own namesake. Yeah. And even though they were unfaithful in, in certain areas, he yep. still that's right. was faithful to his promise. Yeah. And so there were some who were yeah. going to obey, and most of them were not going to obey. Yeah. You know, but he was faithful, yeah. even though they were not. That's right. 
That's good. That's a really good way to say it. Yeah. And thankfully, I don't get blasted yeah. at the hell because I make a, one wrong decision. That's right. One really bad decision. Like right. Yeah, because salvation is not by works. If it was by works, we'd be in bad shape, right? It's, it's by grace alone that you are saved. Now, that grace produces a new heart. Well, yeah, grace gives you a new heart, and then a new heart does what a new heart does, right? It starts to love God more and more. Um, yeah, that's good. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for my bad decisions. Right, that's right too, yep. Yep, which might even get, get to some of this, you know, maybe all that old generation, that doesn't necessarily mean all of them were unbelievers, but they all are going to experience the consequence of not entering the land. Moses is not going to enter the land. I don't think we're supposed to read into that. Well, Moses wasn't a true believer. I mean, you keep reading the rest of the Bible. It's pretty clear we keep looking back to Moses as a pretty good example of things, right? So, all right. Well, let's talk about vows. <clears throat> we'll finish this off pretty quick. Um, Numbers 30, verses 1 through 16 Uh, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel saying, this is what the Lord commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, I'll remind you that vows and then oaths, oaths are kind of, they're similar to vows. Uh, Vows are normally the Lord has done something or you're you're vowing to to respond with thankfulness. An oath might be more like, I'm going to, do X, Y, and Z. Like you think of like them going into battle, like we're gonna, we're gonna make, th- think about, in the, uh, you have some bad examples of oaths, like where they're kind of like uh, a bunch of men bind themselves together to kill Saul, right? They bind themselves with an oath, like we're not gonna eat or drink until we've killed Saul. I, I don't know if they actually starved to death or what, because they didn't kill Saul. So you kind of, I kind of, when I read that passage, I do wonder what happened to them. Did they really like hold on to that oath? I don't know. Um, anyway, so, uh, so these are things that are freely given. They are not required, uh, by stipulation, but by the heart. They're not stipulated in the law how many vow offerings you're made to give. They are a free expression of a heart that is thankful for the Lord's provision, goodness, or is out of contrition over their own sin. Somehow, it freely rises from the heart of the individual to make a vow offering to the Lord, okay? So, uh, so I, the reason I'm saying that is because you'll remember at the end of Leviticus, we have all this stuff about blessings and curses, and you might think Leviticus should end there, and then you get this whole last chapter on vows, well, if the whole book of Leviticus really is about us relating to the holy God and our desire to, to walk with God, and vow offerings are a good capstone to that, isn't it? Because that is the free expression of the heart towards God in thankfulness of, in terms of God, you are, you are working in my life. I have something to be thankful for. I have something to be sorry about or see. Now, they had other sin offerings they individually would make too. So vow offerings, maybe sin offerings are a little different. But you get the point. This is kind of like the capstone of a lot of that, personal walking with God, even in the Old Covenant. Um, they're based on the Lord's activity in one's life and demonstrate a relationship to God. It, is not, it shows that religious life is not merely abstract. It is not merely perfunctory. It is, in fact, a vital relationship with the living God, right? That the living God is active in this, your, these individuals' lives. Um, <clears throat> So I think that's why we see this is so important uh, and why it's here. But the reason it gets addressed here is also practical. Uh, number one, they have to take vows seriously, and they know that. We, we see that in other passages later in the scriptures too, like Proverbs twenty twenty five. It's a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and then reflect only after making vows. It's a serious thing. Ecclesiastes says uh, it's, it'd be better not to vow than to vow something to the Lord and not fulfill it. Right? So uh, that's Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. Um, so they have to take it seriously, but in taking it seriously, there are going to be times where you're going to have issues as you're living in the land. So again, we have this authority is a good thing from God, right? So, so in, uh, marriage, 
we, we have the headship of the husband, right? And we could have a whole other series on that, but, but that, that's the way the Bible lays it out, and that's good. Um, but what happens if a wife wants to make a vow, right? Or she makes a vow. Think that's going to affect the whole family we're talking about. So we have to think through how, how are they going to work out these details in everyday life where they're still taking vows seriously, but they're also recognizing the authority structures and the way that's going to impact family life in the land. And so you go through this section and it deals with, first of all, uh, the, this, uh, a, a man must keep his vow because he is in that authority structure um, and vows are serious, so you got to keep it. You're going to see the same thing uh, with widows and divorced women in verse 9 because the authority, they're, they're not married and they're not in their father's home. So the, the authority structure is when they make a vow, because vows are important, they have to keep it. You can't just change your mind. So this isn't a man-woman thing. This is a how do we live out in the roles and relationships God gives us our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. Bible's get, it gets practical, right? Because this, this matters in life. The Bible's not just, again, some abstract series of philosophical statements, right? So uh, it deals with things like an unmarried woman still living in the care of her, her father in verses three through five, a younger woman, uh, verses six through eight, a woman who before she's married might make a vow that would affect her husband and family once she's married. Um, we talked about widows and divorced women. Verses 10 through 16, a married woman who makes a vow. And so really what we see in all these is that the authority figure, um, when they hear of the vow as the leader, they have to, before God, make a decision about, is this really the good direction for our family as a whole? Or am I going to say, you know, no, I, you know, maybe, maybe and doesn't say this here, but maybe I could appreciate your heart in that, but that's really not going to be the direction we can go as a family right now. So you can obviously see how this can get abused. All authority can get abused, and God calls abuse abuse, right? Um, but we also see that doesn't mean authority is bad. Authority is the way things are going to be rightly structured and ordered. And so, um, but, but if he hears it, he can't, he can't ignore it, shirk his responsibility, and then later on decide, well, you know, I don't really like the way this is going to affect the family, so I'm going to tell you you can't do this. The point is, he's got to actually exercise leadership that's early on. He can't just be a personal self-interest thing down the road. I don't like this. We're not going to do it now. Now that I see where the rubber meets the road, I don't like this. No, your vow, so we're trying to hold those two things together. Vows are important. We got to figure out how that's going to look in marriages and all these other authority structure relationships. Um, you know, one, one thing that's interesting is um, authority should, especially when you're talking about like, um, you know, godly authority, think about in, in, the, in the time of judges. Do you remember a really bad vow that gets made? Yeah. yeah, I don't remember the guy's name. Who is it? Remember the guy's name? Jephthah. Being with a J, what was it? Jephthah, Jephthah right? Um, but think about it. The whole book of Judges is there's no king in Israel. Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. So I think, you know, if you would have further applied this principle, what you would have liked to have seen is the king or the authority. Because in Israel, king is, is united to uh, theocracy. I mean, so there is something unique here that's different. But say, no, you can't make that sacrifice, Right? We, we don't sacrifice people here. That's not the way this works, right? So vows are important, but if you make a vow that needs to be changed, right sense of authority should protect against that too. I think that's one thing you see. Anyway, that's getting a little bit further down the storyline, uh, but, but you, you kind of get the point here. Vows, they're going to have to figure out what that's going to look like. Okay, so let's wrap it up. Um, I hope what you, what you got from this in terms of application is, um, well, even, even just the theological point for them and for us, Old Testament and New Testament, is we walk with God in daily life. And, and only those who believe God care about questions of how does this get lived out? You see what I'm saying? Like, they're working that out in the Old Covenant, 
But what I'm saying is the principle is still the same. If we believe in the one true living God and not just materialism or um, kind of a, we live like we're atheists, we talk about it like we're Christians, but then we live as if there's no God, that doesn't work. We have to live, and so we have to ask ethical questions. We have to ask practice-type questions. How do we walk and live these things out? And so we, we need God's wisdom, and uh, we, we need God's word. That's where we're going to find God's wisdom, and then we work the principles out in our daily life. So how, how does your thinking, uh, how are you giving thought to daily life to show that you believe um, all of life is lived in the presence of God? I think that's one practical application. But what we're seeing here ultimately is, in terms of the storyline, is this new generation is going to be trusting the faithful God. What I'm saying is, as new covenant believers, how are we showing a trust in the living God? Does that make sense? Maybe not? Okay. Well, sorry if it doesn't make sense. Okay, some people think it makes sense. So, good. All right, well, it made sense to me, and so I was encouraged by it. Uh, maybe you were not encouraged by it, but I was. No, hopefully it helps you um, as we pursue the Lord together and in our own individual lives. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for taking care of us. Uh, thank you for giving us your word and giving us examples. Uh, you have told us to learn from unfaithful Israel, um, and you told us to also take heed to those who have been um, faithful examples. And so we pray that we would learn and that we rejoice in your faithfulness um, because in, in many ways, as we see your faithfulness here, we know it's your faithfulness to us because through Israel, you brought uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you promised. And through him, you have redeemed us. And uh, through him, you will bring us safely into your kingdom and you will fulfill all your promises even to, to Israel. You are faithful, Lord. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.